Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, what's going on? Welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning, and I'm here every week, each and every week right here today for you. You've been crushing it and cranking through this year. And I know it's been a year with ups and downs, but you're an entrepreneur or you're certainly figuring that out and there's a lot of new opportunities coming around. One of the challenges I think most of us are facing at some stage, whether it's an external block or an internal block, is this, this problem of confidence. Um, am I confident that the market's going to turn around? Am I confident uh, in my product? Am I confident in selling? Or even, probably most importantly, am I confident in who I am? Can I talk to people the right way? It seems like to me, from an NLP background, neuro-linguistic programming, that a lot of people out in the world you know, they either are born with confidence or they're not, right? They either have that social swagger or they don't. My guest this week is going to talk about where it comes from, how it comes, how it's created, and ultimately how we can harness the power of confidence, uh, whether you think you were born with it or not. My guest this week is Dr. Aziz. Uh, he's the world's leading confidence expert. He teaches people how to learn confidence so they can eliminate self-doubt, hesitation, social anxiety, master conversations, accelerate your career. Literally, like whatever it is you're wanting to accomplish, being confident in approaching this makes it always so much easier and more successful. He's also sold over 150,000 books, nearly 2 million podcast downloads for his podcast. Uh, he has a doctorate from Stanford and Palo Alto Universities. He is the leading expert in psychology of confidence and the founder of the Center for Social Confidence. Please welcome Dr. Aziz. Are you there, my friend? I am, and I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Dude, I cannot wait, man. Like just before we went uh, live, you know, I was talking to you about your academic background and you also have an NLP background. You studied with Tony Robbins and, and some of his people as well. A uh, friend of ours, Steve Linder, you know, so shout out to Steve. You have this really interesting like personal development, professional development side, which is, you know, up and coming in the last several decades and the academic psychology side. Can you tell me a little bit about where this started for you? Did you get interested in confidence from the academic or was it more of a personal growth for you? Yeah, my fascination and obsession with confidence came from a personal desperation. It's where it all started. So I had, I, I was one of those people that was quote born without confidence. If anyone thinks that's, that's them, then you're in the right place. And it was like, well, look at me, I'm different than those people. So-and-so can just do this, they can speak up, they can share, they can have people respond well to them. And I didn't have any of that. And I perceived that that was just how it was. And I lived that way. I lived in that cage for almost two decades. And then 
fortunately, something snapped inside of me in a good way. And I realized, like, if I don't do something about this, my life's gonna be pretty dismal. And I became obsessed. There was like a quest inside to figure it out. And pretty early on, I didn't have massive instant success, but I had a taste. And I studied some, you know, self-development stuff online. And it was like, wait a minute, if, if I try something different, if I learn basic stuff that I know you teach everyone on this podcast, you know, about mindset or, you know, beliefs about yourself, stuff I didn't know concept until that point, I tested some of those things out. And I realized, wait a minute, something can change here. And then I was hooked. And then it was just a journey, uh, again, fueled by my own discovery. Was, I was just a 21-year-old who wanted to learn how to date, honestly. That was my main, that's all I thought I needed. I just needed to be able to know how to talk to a woman. Did, you, have, did, you, date, did you date up until that point? Any kind of significant relationships? Or was this always kind of eluded you and you, got, you said, I got to figure it out? Eluded me. I had maybe two different opportunities up until that point to date in which a woman had approached me. And I was still unable to have a relationship of any sort. Cause even though, you know, cause once in a blue moon, something like that might happen, even if you're very shy and anxious and avoid all interaction with women, sometimes they might get pursued and it did happen a few times. But then even that I couldn't stay in contact or in a relationship with her because I was just so uncomfortable in my own skin that I, on some level felt like I don't want her to find out the real me. I don't deserve this. All kinds of stuff. I didn't even know what was going on. All I felt was even more anxiety and then a desire to create distance. And so really no dating life to speak of at all up until that point. So let's just, before we move on, I want to kind of continue talking about growing up a bit. Um, nurture versus nature. Interesting conversation. Uh, before we started talking, uh, you know, you said your dad's from Pakistan. You didn't really grow up in that culture per se. But certainly there's this cultural DNA of when we have parents and grandparents that are coming from different countries, different cultures, there's all different ways to raise children and, um, you know, how we interact with each other. How much do you feel like naturally as a kid, you were just, however you would describe yourself, the shy or quiet, et cetera. Um, I don't want to label you, you, you know, you label you. How much of it was just sort of, this is my personality, this is kind of who I am as a kid versus how much do you think was like learned from the environment, the culture, the parenting, et cetera? Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, this is such a great question, Matt. And it's something I've studied a lot, obviously, you know, in academic psychology with clients. And uh, I have two children of my own. So it's a deep study of, well, how do we do this? How do we create an environment that fosters confidence? And it's a common question I get. People are like, well, what's the difference between social anxiety and shyness? And I kind of feel like I was, I was born this way. And so here's the, here's the summary I could give. Uh, everyone, it, we all come out differently. I mean, everyone is different. And some people have more sensitive nervous systems. People are sensitive to sound. People are sensitive to other people's emotions. Some people are more perceptive than others. Some people see color brighter and taste things more than others. So yeah, it's very different. different neurology. My, my son is definitely a highly sensitive person. The toilet flushes, he, he plugs his ears. But he's a pretty normal, quote unquote, kid, but definitely has a sensitivity out and in, in around people. Absolutely. And that's the kind of subtle stuff that I think I love that as a parent, you're able to pick up on that. And all that gives you information is, well, how do I help him navigate the world given some of the way that he's wired? And, and it's such a beautiful way to look at it as opposed to like, well, geez, this is some problem that we have to then 
uh, is going to afflict him for his whole life. It's like, well, how do we help him navigate this? And I think there's a lot of people that are uh, born perhaps a little more sensitive. Maybe they're more sensitive to sounds or other people's energy or emotion. And that does create something that you need to work with. You need guidance. You need some support and help in understanding, well, how do I navigate social interactions? How do I navigate the world given that I might feel these things? Most people, myself included, didn't get any of that guidance, right? So you just kind of figure it out. And what ends up happening is you get into some environments, usually around maybe grade school, but especially around middle school in the United States was around, you know, 10, 11 to 13 years old. And you start to have experiences that might be challenging or painful. And then your mind comes to conclusions about it. You know, wow, I, I, I was, I felt a little inhibited going and talking to those people. So-and-so did it fine. I couldn't, huh, is there something different about me? And we just start to have that seed of self-doubt gets planted. And it can be very uh, benign or it can be, I mean, if you're bullied, if you're criticized, if you're ostracized, if you're, you know, kind of left to what a lot of the school might be like, sort of a Lord of the Flies kind of scenario, um, it can really just intensify that. And then all that happens is self-perception, stories about ourselves get locked into place. And then once that happens, and it usually happens around that age, 11 to 13, sometimes it happens when people are in high school, about, you know, 14 to 17. But in that range, some of these stories get locked in, the identity gets locked in. I'm not a social person. I'm not an attractive person. I have social anxiety. People wouldn't like me if they got to know the real me. Some of those stories get locked in and then we carry them for decades unless we unwind them, unless we change this. And then we just think that's who we are. So yes, there's this seed of perhaps sensitivity or shyness that is just really something to navigate, but we end up piling a bunch of stories on it, a bunch of identity on it. And the next thing we know, we've lived into that identity for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Before we move on to kind of how, how we can shift this about ourselves and the people we love as adults, I want to kind of continue on the child uh, realm. So let's say you're your parent and, and how old are your kids right now? I saw the pictures of them. They're cute little guys. Yeah, they're, uh, they're four and six right four now. Four and six, right? So as, you know, when you look at your kids, say five, 10 years from now, and you will see them developing whatever story they begin developing, every human develops their, their own narrative to explain the events and the meanings and so forth. When you watch your own kids develop the meanings for what that is, is there, I don't know, like some kind of an, an early warning system, like, hey, I see him acting a certain way, or I see him maybe avoiding this situation how would you, with your background, ascertain what the narrative is? Hey, what story? Because you can't say, hey, buddy, what story are you telling yourself? And is it a lie? Is it a limiting belief? Or is it true? How, how, what's your approach with kind of the child side of as these stories are developed? Because certainly I want to nip it in the bud at 11 rather than at 52 years old, right? Absolutely. And I love this question, Matt. Uh, Why, so thank you. Because it's something I've been, uh, I study a lot, especially in my own kids. And it's kind of like this, let's say someone has a health crisis, right? And they're like, oh man, I have, maybe they have a cancer forming or they have some other, maybe less serious thing, but it still needs attention. And they're like, okay, what's the diet? What do I do? How do I shift this right now? And there's a solution then, but the better solution is like over the previous 10 years, don't have lived the way that you did. You know, uh, like, <laughs> right, you know, the, the, the high driving, high stress, fast food, whatever they've been doing, right? So, and it's the kind of the same thing is like, you know, parents have an issue with their kids at 13. And it's like, well, what happened between age three and 13? 
And so now people are listening and have kids, don't, no, no despair here because there's always an opportunity to intervene, but especially you know, when the younger they are and the, and the more intention we can bring to this. And I would say you absolutely can have those conversations about their stories. And I'll give an example of how we've done this with my kid, Zaim, who's now six, when he was as early as four. But uh, so I would, uh, we have a bike and there's a seat on the back of the bike. And uh, when I would get on and off the bike, you know, there would be a little wobbly and he'd be like, ah, you know, and he'd think he was going to fall. So there's a, just this common, simple example of a place where a kid might be afraid, just like we might be afraid to go talk to somebody, afraid to put ourselves out there, afraid to be on a stage, whatever. And so I'm like, okay, there's an opportunity to teach him about the fear. And so I said, oh, are you scared? And he said, yeah, I'm scared. I said, oh, well, uh, what are you scared of? I said, I'm scared of falling. I said, oh, okay. And every time we, I would get on or off the bike, he'd go, ah! <laughs> And I said, okay, so this happened a few times. And I said, so you're, you're scared of falling. Um, have you ever fallen with, with, getting, with me getting on or off the bike? He's like, no. I said, okay. Um, so I guess the, what we want to look at is, you know, there's, there's two different kinds of uh, fear. There's, there's fear that's danger and fear that's worry. Worry is when we tell ourselves something that is going to happen, but it may or may not. So, uh, and again, and I started to give him an example of a fear thought versus a worry thought. I'm like running out in a busy road and you feel fear. Is that, you know, fear or worry? And he's like, fear. And I'm like, um, uh, an asteroid's going to hit our house. Is that a fear or a worry? And he's like, worry. And so he started to play this game of fear versus worry. And then I got to the bike and I was like, what do you think it is? And it wasn't me telling him like, listen, that's a worry. Put it away. I was like, what do you think it is? And he said, I think it's a worry. I said, yeah, I think so too. I, I don't think there's ever been a time that you've fallen. I got you. So I gave him some reassurance too. So those kinds of little interactions, we're just helping them see the difference, lays the groundwork. And, and then even as they, as they get older, you can have those kind of conversations. And, and again, the place that, you, that I come from, which makes it much more effective, is curiosity. Asking tons of questions. What are you, what are you afraid of? And then empathizing like, oh, and then telling stories too. My kids love it. And, and even teenage, teenagers, I worked with clients that have teenage kids are trying to support, uh, you know, sharing stories about like, yeah, I remember my first prom or my dance or my thing where I felt like no one wanted to talk to me. I remember a time I lost my friend group and just sharing those stories and being really curious about their experience can do so much to shift and prevent those um, debilitating stories from taking hold. And Solid answer. I love fear versus worry and explaining the two different types where it's essentially made up or there's actually a danger. And I love the approach, of course, of the curiosity, let them answer the question, explore it with them. And what really stuck out to me, Aziz, is you said, it feels like you, you can do this at four, at six, whether riding the bike. And if you have enough of these experiences, and ultimately, if the kid can learn to begin discerning for themselves, right, begin to decide, oh, now I have this tool set where I understand this concept of fear and worry. Now when I'm 12 and somebody laughs at me at school, maybe they have a better tool set, right? Maybe they have more, a more resourceful state of mind to tell a better story. So it's almost like rather than intervening at the story time, you're really building the blocks during the developmental period, during that imprint time. Absolutely. And so I go really deep into this in my newest book called On My Own Side, which is about uh, the, the pattern many of us have of turning on ourselves, being overly harsh and impatient with ourselves, demanding more perfectionism, and really stepping into 100% being on our own sides, 
no matter what. And then from that place, navigating life. And I explore a fair amount about the origins uh, in us because all of our own experiences and not being on our own side come from these, these early experiences in life. And I also talk a lot about how to help our kids be on their own sides. But you're absolutely right. I call it the ultra long game. It's the ultra long game. And, and, and so many things that I we do as that. parents that are, that are short, short-term gain, like I want to get control of my kid right now to make sure they obey me. And when we do that, we just might be short-circuiting the ultra long game, which might set them up. So a great question, guiding question for parents is, what, what, what is my ultimate outcome? Like what kind of man or woman or person do I want my kid to be? And, you know, is this what I'm doing here, nurturing that? Are we, is that steering in that direction? Um, and of course, I feel like you and I could have a, a whole podcast dedicated to parenting. And I think it's a fascinating Man, I, I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop. This is good. That's actually the book I'm working on now called Leadership Parenting. And I don't want to oh. get into the, being a parenting expert. And I don't think I am. But with this same sort of background, it's just such a, I just think it's so important, right? And when you said the short game versus the long game, it's like, you know, my wife and I talk a lot about, you know, hey, this isn't the hill I'm going to die on. I don't think even right now, you know, um, we, we've been homeschooling because the school had shut down from earlier in the year. And I like the idea of homeschooling, but we're not that great at it. And just to recognize that I love teaching adults, but we're just not, neither one of us are really great at that aspect. But there's this feeling of, but we should be, right? Like mm. my wife, you know, I'm a mom and all the good moms will you know, they feed their kids kale and they have these healthy snacks and they're, they're <laughs> homeschool superheroes and everyone is perfect and they do puzzles all day. And she's like, I just, <laughs> we don't feel like that. And it, it's hard to approach it. But we landed on just as a quick example that, you know what, this isn't the right thing for us. It's actually, I think it's damaging the relationship because, you know, we become someone different you know, more of a taskmaster or, you know, getting annoyed easier. And all of a sudden you're like, you're trying to fight this battle with this kid you love dearly to quiet down and write this report or work on the school thing because the school said you have to do this one assignment. And then we're like, how important is that? Let's play the long game. Is this one random school assignment, you know, in the middle of a temporary homeschool period, is that really the thing we want to, is that the hill we want to die on? It's like, no our relationship's way more important. So I love the long game. I want to switch gears a little bit into the, um, the, the adult side. And especially that, um, the idea of identities. Can I talk to you about that for a moment? Yeah. When, when you talked about, in some of your books, you talk about like social anxiety. And I'm looking for the name because this one really stuck out to me. And you're already going you're, you're to get me on it, but I love it. Hang on. The Solution to Social Anxiety. And that's one of your, your awesome books. Um, I think when we get into, you know, social settings, there's a lot of identity people can bring into it. Like, you know, you get called quiet or you get called shy because that's how you acted. You spoke about that a little earlier. Can you speak to sort of the shedding of identities um, or how, why and how we put on identities as people? Anything at all you want to talk about, about the health or the negative side of identities for ourselves? Yeah, I, this is a great question. I think identities are... They're, they're constructs, they're concepts, they're uh, roles we can play or skins, outfits we can put on. And, you know, therefore it can be helpful. It, it can be useful to have a certain identity as long as we're very aware that it is just a, a limited concept. It's an idea and it's not 100% true or comprehensive of who we are and that we are 
so dynamic and so expansive. And uh, there's a philosopher named Alan Watts who I absolutely love. And he said, you know, one of the best ways to describe a person would actually be to say, if you go down to a river and you see a little whirlpool that's kind of formed on the side of the river and water's rushing through, it spins for a while and moves along. He's like, we as people are kind of like that whirlpool. So if you go back to the river the next day, you'll still see the whirlpool there, but it's entirely different water. And we're just constantly flux, constant changing, constant growth, never the same. And we just know this. We tune into our own experience and our own emotion. And that doesn't mean that we don't have certain patterns or certain styles or certain sensitivities or certain preferences that remain consistent for periods of time. But whenever we say, I am this, you're inherently pretty limited. I mean, the human band of behavior, if you imagine stretching your arms out as wide as you could from side to side, that's how big, that's the infinite of things that you could do, you could express yourself as, you could wear, you could pursue, you could, facial expressions you could make, the way you could wear your hair. I mean, so many different permutations. And then we distill it down to a very small number and say, I'm the kind of person who wears these clothes, does this kind of work, communicates in this way, smiles this much, but not that much, laughs like this, but not like that. You know, when we really narrow the, the wide band of human behavior down to, you know, imagine bringing your hands, you know, two inches from each other or one inch from each other. And we want to be very wary of that process, especially when it's done unconsciously and sort of chosen by default for us. Like I'm, and especially the identity is disempowering. So one of the most powerful things to look at is just, I am. When you That's say right. I am, I am what, you know, I am, or I have, you know, I have, I am socially anxious or I have social anxiety. Um, uh, I am lazy. I don't follow through whatever these things are. I can't complete. I'm not competent. You know, whatever these stories and identities might be, notice which ones, and this is a really simple exercise I'll do with clients sometimes is, isn't I, I a quick, uh, you know, 60 second identity audit. And you just say, okay, great. You know, what are all the things you believe about yourself? You know, positive and negative. And just have them write it down. You know, it's like, I am intelligent. I am, I don't follow through. I'm, I'm awkward. I'm attractive, whatever it is. And then we just want to take a look at it all and say, great. Uh, well, first of all, let's, let's look at shedding some of those older identities. But then also with the, with the empowering identities that feel good, how do we use these? but not have them limit or define us. Because if you say, I'm disciplined, that's a great identity, right? It could serve you in a lot of ways. But what happens when you, you don't do the action that day? What happens if you're not perfect? Do you harshly turn on yourself and say, ah, oh, man, what's wrong with me? I need to be more, Ugh. you know? And so for me, I mean, that's, that's a setup. Because then I would put being on my own side of higher priority than any identity. And then what we want to do is we want to look at, okay, well, how do we become a lot more free of all of this? And I'd say it's not just what uh, you know, the concept we have, it's what do I do and how do I be? How do I show up? And that's much more true. That's the moment to moment. So for example, if someone's like, oh, I'm, I'm an anxious person, I'm a socially anxious person, then what we're going to look at, what I'm going to do with that person over time is we're going to help them look at what behaviors might they do if they didn't believe that about themselves? What are the things they might really want? Well, maybe I'd just walk into a group of people and just start talking to people. And maybe I'd ask someone out that I found really attractive. It's like, great. And then we work on overcoming the fear, step-by-step, bit-by-bit, inner work and outer work to the point where they can do that. And I've had people, clients, where it's like, I don't speak up in groups was part of their identity. And uh, one client really got it. If 
if I consistently speak up in groups, I then become the kind of person who speaks up in groups. And he did that. Well, how, can, how can you fight that fact at that point? How, how can you have that, that dissonance in yourself where you say, oh, I'm not a kind of person who speaks up in groups, yet I do that every day? Yes. Okay. Here's the thing. It's, uh, well, who have you been and who do you want to be? Was the question I asked him. And I said, you, you could live into that identity for the rest of your life. And you could say, I'm not the kind of person that speaks up in groups. You get some sense of certainty about that. At least I know who I am. I'm not one of those people. And you probably secretly resentfully judge people who speak up in groups and say, what a, what a, what a you know, show up. And they talk all the time and they talk over people. And yeah. I can never even get a word in anyway. I don't want to be one of those people anyway. Exactly. Right. And so now what you're doing is you're trying to bolster up your sense of significance and worth by saying, Hey, I'm better than those people. But deep down, it's hurting you inside because you know, you do want to be able to speak up. You do want it's for your career for this guy it was for his career. It might be for your social life it might just be at a party or a gathering and feel like you don't have to always be on the sidelines not fitting in whatever the setting deep down, you just got to get honest and say, what do you really want? And that's what I look at with clients all the time is clarity. What do you really want? I don't have an agenda. You don't have to become this crazy extrovert who's performing at the party and everyone's standing around clapping. Like that's not, might not be you, but you, you still want to be able to go to a, a party or a gathering, a mixer and, and move towards the people that you want and get into some great conversations with them and not feel totally in your head about it and judging yourself and avoidance. So what do you really want? Now let's go create that. And then it just comes down to one thing, which is courage and like the, the muscle of courage to face what we're afraid of consistently until fear has no power to stop us. And that's a whole other topic I work on with clients we could go into, but people have this sense of like, well, I'm only going to do it when I'm comfortable with it. Right, right. <laughs> like, well, okay. Uh, let's have the ability to do it be our first goal. And then our ability to do it consistently is our second goal. And then later on, if you want to work on comfort being your ultimate outcome, great. There's a way to get there, but it's, I mean, to get comfortable with public speaking, you probably have to do massive repetition of that. Very, very good. Can, can you say that one more time? So the three stages, I want to make sure that people pull that out as very clear because I, I see that very often as well in my own students and, and just myself and people I know that it, it feels like we have this the first goal is actually potentially one of the last goals it should be. So what were those three phases one more time? Absolutely. And the, that, that last goal, uh, if it's your first goal, you'll never, you'll never make it. So yes. the first goal, and, and this is for any new thing that you want to be able to do, that's going to be honestly growth, whether it's in your career, your, your skill sets, relationships, uh, even your health. Like step one is to do the thing that you want to be able to do in spite of fear, do it scared, do it messy. But to step one is to just be able to do it. And then, so that, you know, in this example of, you know, for me when I was a young man, it's like, yes, be able to go start a conversation with a woman. Like, yes, that's, that's goal number one. And people are like, yeah, but what if I'm awkward when I do it? Or what if I, you know, I get rejected. It's like, and that's what my work with people is, is like, yes, yes, that could happen. Yes, how are we going to handle that? You know, hopefully, yes, hopefully it will. Yes, right, exactly. Because if that person rejects you, that might seem like the worst thing in the world. And it has been in people's lives when they're trying to lone wolf it and do it themselves. But if they have that support and then we're, you know, and we're in a container where we're growing, then that becomes a powerful learning opportunity. Because what happens when that person says no to you, whether it is for dating or for a job or for a contract or for as a client, what happens when they say no to you? And most in almost all cases, 
the vast majority of the pain, and I haven't forgot your question, we're gonna, we're gonna cover the three, but the vast majority <laughs> of the pain, um, I can't help myself with all these open loops. The vast majority of the pain is not from that person saying no, it's from the way that you turn on yourself after they say no. And if you make a study of rejection and look at it, the, the pain is in our own mind. It's the stories about, oh my gosh, this means I'm a loser. This means I'm not worthy. This means, or the, 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 the anxiety that we can create by saying, this means it'll never work. This means I'll never you know, get clients. This means I'll never have a relationship. So whatever it is, that whole ball of wax, we gotta be willing to go in to, to achieve this step one. We gotta be willing to face it. And there are ways to do this more gently. I'm a huge fan of gradual exposure. So, you know, if, if speaking up in that work meeting with all the executives, it just feels like it's going to, you know, explode your head, then try speaking up in a small, low key meeting by asking a basic question, you know, and do that repeatedly, whatever it is, do the thing that's in the direction of what you want. That's the thing. Do it scared. Stage two is to be able to do it repeatedly. Even if you're scared, even if you don't do it well. Yes. To do it repeatedly, become more regular. Yes. And in my group programs, I talk about immediate action, which would be stage one. Like you get inspired. Okay, I'm going to do it. And then you got to make it consistent action. So, okay. That means you don't just, because if you just spoke up once in that smaller meeting, let's say that was your kind of your lesser intensity version of this. You do it once. It's, it's, it's a significant thing because maybe you're saying, Hey, wait, well, look, I thought I couldn't, but I could, but it's going to fade. I mean, we got to make it consistent. So then it's like, well, I'll do challenges and games with clients where it's like, Hey, um, find three opportunities this week to speak up in different meeting settings. And then, so then we start to get some consistency and then only once we're doing, and first of all, you can get incredible results in your life from just that second stage. And, and I've seen this again and again, and, and you can, you can achieve, you can excel, you can create better relationships. You can do all these things at that stage too. Now, if you really, yeah, but I want to be totally totally comfortable doing it. I'm like, great. That, I do believe that's possible. It's going to require a whole lot more inner work and outer repetition. So the outer repetition might be, if you want to get comfortable, you know, having conflict with people or being more direct or public speaking or getting rejected, yeah, guess what you have to do a lot more of? <laughs> yeah, you're going to need a lot, a lot of repetition. And people are like, well, how many? <laughs> they want like a number. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know, but it's, it's probably in the triple digits uh, to get really. And then, and then it's not just doing it uh, a bunch. It's also doing the inner work because, and this is the part that I think people really don't like to face. But after you get the rejection, we want to, and it hurts. We just want to go into our phone. We want to crack open a beer. We want to watch TV. We want to be like, I don't want to feel any of that. And, but if we really want to be free and if total liberation, which is my goal, I think that's the highest level of confidence is not, I get what I want. Everyone says yes to me. I win at everything. That's not confidence. That's just a fantasy of a pain-free life. I think true confidence, unconditional confidence is when those challenging things happen, I know how to navigate them with an open heart. And yes, I'll feel pain, but it will not stop me. It will not destroy me. And I'll be able to be with it and more and more swiftly untangle the stories of self-judgment and blame and everything and quickly come back to love of myself, to surrender that that person rejected me because that's how it was supposed to go, to trust that I can learn and keep getting better. 
and and find our way. And I think that's an art, and I'm, that's an art that I'm obsessed with and continuing to study. And and we all get snagged, and all get snagged for. But instead of getting snagged for forever, maybe we shrink it down to a week, and then a day, and then maybe even as short as an hour sometimes, or even one minute. Very good. But start with something. Start small. But start now. Get moving. Uh, we're here with Dr. Aziz. You can find out more, of course, at draziz.com. It's D R A Z I Z, draziz.com. And you have a very cool uh, it's a book you're giving away for free on your website Five Steps to Unleash Your Inner Confidence. You can also, of course, find out about all of Dr. Aziz's books, courses, everything else. You can follow him on YouTube. Uh, and uh, let's see, YouTube is. Oh, get more confidence. Look at that. And you have a really cool YouTube channel as well. Um, have that open. You just got video after video of just teaching this, these different pieces about confidence, whether it's social confidence, whether it's inner game, whether it's how to accomplish and get things done, facing it through courage. A lot of great videos on there. So check out his YouTube channel, get more confidence. And then head over to draziz.com, five steps to unleash your inner confidence. It's free and you can get that right now. Um, Dr. Aziz, Final question for you. I know we got to wrap up and let you get moving with the day. You got a lot of confident things to, to accomplish today. Um, of all the introspection you've done, you've certainly, you look forward, but you've also looked back a lot. Is there anything that you would change in your, especially in your first 21 years, or would you leave it all the same? Oh, I love that question. I would leave it all the same because through that, pain and place of stuckness and hopelessness, I found a deeper purpose and calling that is an endless fire to, to study this and to teach it and to help as many people as I can with it. So uh, for that sense of purpose, it just all feels like it's, you know, divine, the divine flow and I'm exactly where I should be. So I will keep it exactly as it is. The phoenix did not rise from a flower bed, but rose from a bed of ashes. Very, very <laughs> good. Dr. Aziz, thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate you and looking forward to staying connected as well and continuing this, this process of confidence. Thanks so much. I love it. Thank you. All right, guys, that's the show this week. Wow. So thank you so much to my guest, Dr. Aziz. Um, phenomenal human being and obviously a wealth of information and knowledge. So do make sure you go follow him uh, and go to Dr. Aziz, that's D-R-A-Z-I-Z.com. If you're listening to this live, of course, you can go anywhere where you get this podcast, The Driven Entrepreneur On Demand. You can get the radio show on Stitcher, Spotify, uh, Apple, Google Play, all those cool places. And you can get hundreds of episodes in the archives, always for free, no paywall. So go listen to some of the other episodes we've done. We've uh, interviewed best-selling authors, interviewed uh, Olympians, interviewed filmmakers, interviewed top entrepreneurs. You get a lot of great origin story backgrounds behind these people. And I'm going to continue having people just like Dr. Aziz each and every week for you where we get into some real topics that will affect you, your family's life, and your business's life every single day. Make sure you follow me at Matt Bronian if you haven't already on Instagram. Love to connect with you there. Send me a DM and I will talk to you soon. Get out there this weekend. Stay driven. Is that my new thing? That's my new thing. Stay driven. Do it. All right. All right. See ya.